0: You know you think about how the drafts have become like red carpet moments. The draft's yeah, one thing, time. but everything that goes bananas out there in social is what people wore.
1: Oh, I shopped at the express for my draft, <laughs> yeah, twenty
0: years we ago, were... was it even on your mind like simply so me no, take my picture, like, ask me what I'm wearing?
1: No, it's like you wanted to look nice, but we literally went to the Buckland Mall, <laughs> twenty minutes away from campus. <laughs> And it was literally, and Banana Republic at that time was like too expensive. You know what I mean? Like that was like, oh, that's too adult. So we went to like the limited and express, like all these types of places and just bought something off the rack. And like, that was it. So
0: you're killing me. You should have gone to Nordstrom.
1: I don't, honestly, you the Nordstrom was at West Farms Mall. Yes. And that was like 40 minutes away. And that was a little too far for us. <laughs>
0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. So this episode was really fun for me because at long last we're opening up the Nordstrom Mailbag And the first thing we wanted to do along those lines is tell you about some feedback that we got about the scent in our stores. And what's interesting to me is that this rose to the top, and it's why we're giving it to you first. We had multiple people inquiring about, is there a scent at Nordstrom? What's that all about? So we're going to dive into that, and we're going to figure out, is there, in fact, a scent at Nordstrom? I think you'll find this interesting. It's
2: very calming to me, that smell. I don't know. I mean, maybe there isn't a smell, but somehow it's the way the store is set up. You know, it's kind of like new car smell.
0: But before that, listen to my fascinating conversation with arguably the single most successful women's professional basketball athlete of all time, and local Seattle legend as well, Sue Sue Bird. This has come up a few times on the Nordy Pod. It's no secret that I'm a sports fan, and particularly of basketball. I played a lot of basketball growing up. I'm involved in a mentorship program for the men's basketball team at my alma mater, the University of Washington. And for a short time, I was even part owner of the Seattle Supersonics and also the Seattle Storm. So it should come as no surprise that I jumped at the opportunity to talk with Sue Bird, arguably the greatest athlete to ever play the game. And I've got to be honest, I was a little nervous before talking with Sue because, frankly, she's kind of a big deal. I mean, her career is just filled with national and world championships. If you look in chronological order, Sue Bird's accomplishments, that in and of itself is the episode and can tell the whole story. So I feel like I need to do this as a setup for those of you who don't know her particularly well. But let's put this all in perspective. Sue, to start out with, was a two-time state champion in high school. She's a two-time NCAA champion at the University of Connecticut. She's a four-time WNBA championship winner with the Seattle Storm. She's the WNBA's all-time leader in seasons played, games played, assists, and all-star appearances. She's a five-time Olympic gold medalist four-time FIBA World Cup gold medalist, and I can go on and on. I mean, these accomplishments are remarkable, and I just don't want to gloss over. I want to make sure everyone understands the context of why we wanted to talk to Sue. I mean, she's made a huge impact on the sport, but aside from her amazing achievements on the court, she's also an incredible social advocate for equality in women's sports and women in general. We look back on Sue's childhood to the source of her competitive spirit and hear about important lessons in leadership learned along the way. I had a really great time talking with Sue, and I know you're going to love listening to her story. So let's get into it. oh well, hey, Sue, thanks for joining us.
1: Hello.
0: It's nice to meet you.
1: Yeah, nice to
0: meet you, too. So I don't know if you've listened to the podcasts I've done, but mostly I just talk to people that I'm interested in, that I know about stuff I'm interested in and know. The difference on this one is we don't know each other. I'm I'm talking to you because I'm a basketball fan. And, and innocently enough, as we were talking about who we could get as a guest, I said, do you think we could get Sue Bird? I want to talk to Sue Bird. And our PR people are like, I don't know, maybe. So. Sure. Thank you for agreeing to do this. It's a big deal to me, and I, I really, really appreciate it. So the, the first thing I, w- I want to get your reaction to is, I, as I was thinking about talking to you, the first thing that came into my mind is I remember very clearly when you first came to Seattle and listening to sports talk radio, and they were talking about the storm and Sue Bird and the number one draft choice and all this, and what they tended to talk about was how cute you are. Um yeah. Which, you know, okay, that was one thing. And then I was listening yeah. to Sports Talk Radio a couple of weeks ago, and the conversation was Sue Bird is arguably the most impactful and successful pro athlete in the history of Seattle. I mean, the fact that you went from this is a novelty, isn't she cute, and she's playing basketball, to, like, mm-hmm. the most impactful professional athlete in the history of Seattle sports, uh, how does that strike you? I mean, what a journey this has been.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh... No, that's actually, when you put it that way, it's um, it makes me think of it a little differently. I think it's been a journey for myself, just through this experience as a pro athlete, learning as you go, figuring things out. But again, when you put it that way, you're like, oh, like we've come a really long way. Not just myself, just women's sports in general, specifically women's basketball, how we're viewed, the legitimacy of the sport. That's really what I hear when you kind of give that spectrum, if you will. Right. And and people are looking at us like athletes and not just judging us on our appearance or that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, you think about women's pro sports, especially 20 years ago, it was just a different thing. I mean, it was, it was a thing, but it was a little bit more of a, a kind of a curiosity and it just didn't get spoken about in the same way that men's sports did. I mean, there's evidenced by what I'm talking about what these guys talking about you on sports talk radio. I mean, it's, I don't know, to me, it's just a remarkable difference. And then getting a chance to see the quality of the play and how it's really evolved over that time is, is kind of amazing.
1: Yeah. What's interesting about the WNBA when you think about the play is currently we only have 12 teams. When I came into the league, it was, um, we had 16, but that's still not a lot. And we have, you know, anywhere from 11 to 12 roster spots. So it's literally survival of the fittest. I mean, you can't be a bum and make a team. Like, that's just not going <laughs> to happen, you know? And over the years there hasn't been that many retirements. Myself, I'm a great example, myself, Diana Taurasi, um, other names are like Tamika Catchings, people who have had these like really long careers. So there's not that many retirements every year, but there's always a college draft coming in. And so that's that whole like idea of survival of the fittest just gets more and more kind of like prevalent in it. Like you really have to prove yourself to be in this league. And with that, the the, the play on the floor has gotten better. I mean, yeah. I can even think back to my rookie year. It was only the, fifth year i think of the WNBA, so it's like still really new i don't view myself as as like a pioneer in any way i i look at lisa leslie and cheryl swoops that's who i think of but when it's all said and done you know let's say 50 years from now i'll be included in that early group and the basketball was good don't get me wrong but it's light years ahead of where it was now like it's light years yeah so so i think that's been part of the story like getting people again, to look at us like athletes and not all the other things that, that would come with it as a woman.
0: But again, it, it wasn't something that was ubiquitous and out there in the media and all over the place. You had to kind of seek it out. So oh, for yeah. you growing up, did that occur to you that you were looking at people to emulate? Because I can always speak for myself. I, I play a lot of basketball growing up and it was like, you're always emulating, you know, your favorite pro players.
1: Yeah, I didn't have that. Growing up for me was, you know, when I think of basketball, it was the Knicks, I'm from New York. So it was going to the garden was like the big to do for, you know, for basketball. That's, it was synonymous to me. That was pro basketball. That's what basketball was. So I got to watch the Knicks growing up. I loved Kenny Skywalker. He's like my favorite player. Ah. I actually got to see Michael Jordan in his, I think it was his rookie year. So I was like six years old. My parents took me to and a you game. remember game. So oh yeah. I have a vivid memory yeah. of it. So that to me, that's, that's like what I thought of as pro basketball and like what it was. And I never women and women playing basketball didn't really hit for me until years later, where my dad, I don't know. I actually should, you know what, I should probably ask him why he did this, but (laughs) he kind of, he like sat me down and he was like, Hey, there's this documentary on the Stanford women's basketball team. And it was like, maybe like 1990, 1991. So I'm like 10, 11 years old. And he sits me down he's like, Hey, check this out. And it's the first time I see Jennifer Aze. And I always say, like, that was one of my see it, be it moments. And that was the first time I was like, oh, like women do this. But even then, it was just to get a college scholarship. And, you know, I actually saw her years later. Now I'm like 14, 15. She's on the 1996 Olympic team, which for women's basketball is a big year. That really started. That's what put the WNBA not on the map. That's what started the WNBA. And that was kind of like my second see it, be it moment, because now I'm seeing Jennifer Azey be an Olympian. But again, that's just to be an Olympian. There was no like professional dreams for me. I couldn't aspire to be a professional. I, the only way I could do that was to look at the men's game. And that's where my favorite player of all time is Mike Bibby. I like fell in love with him when he was at Arizona. I like love his game. We both were number 10. It's like a match made in heaven. Um <laughs>
0: Wow, I wasn't really... I wasn't expecting the Mike Bibby reference. No, that's nobody does. Good.
1: Nobody does. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow, that's incredible. So, at what point growing up did basketball become like part of your identity? Because you know, I've got young kids and what you can tell is they're growing up, they're searching for kind of their tribe, their identity, the thing that they can attach themselves to. And for me, like for example, I'm tall. So everyone always asked me if I played basketball I mean, there was no yeah. getting around it even if I, I didn't. But for you, <laughs> when did it become part of your identity?
1: Good question. I've never been asked this before. Um, so I actually think the answer to this question is, in a, like, yeah, I think I was in like sixth, fifth, sixth grade. And our like CYO, like the local team that I was playing on, uh, one of the dads had like a connection at St. John's University where we could at halftime play in like a little game. Like, you know, when you go to a game, yeah. you see little kids take the floor at halftime. Yes. So that was me. That was my team. And we played against some other, you know, CYO team. And at the end of it, I don't know, I was out there just like doing my thing. Who knows what I was doing? And at the end, <laughs> a security guard came up to me and my parents. And he was like, Hey, can I get your daughter's autograph? I have a feeling this is gonna be worth something someday. Really, that's a true story. And yeah, and <laughs> that's, I think the first time looking back where I'm like, oh, I must've stood out, you know, like I must've been doing this pretty well. And, and that kind of connected me as a basketball player to like who I am as a person in a way.
0: So like going back to your parents, so was it part of the deal because I hear this a lot. Again, I have young kids, like parents talk a lot about, oh, my kid can get a college scholarship. Was that the talk in your house? Or like, tell me about your parents. I mean, how were they involved in nurturing sports and basketball for you?
1: My parents were always very supportive of everything and all things that I was interested in. They weren't forceful. They didn't, you know, push me. They weren't hard on me in that way. It wasn't like that at all. They were like, oh, you want to go try softball? Sure. Go ahead. You want to do track? Have have at it. You know, even like when I was super little, they would let me dress myself in these wild outfits, but they were like, do your thing. I would show up at, to a party in like a bathing suit and cowboy boots. <laughs> like, what's up? they like, we're like, yeah, go ahead. You know, that's how I would describe them. Um, my mom, I would describe as just incredibly supportive no matter what, like good game bad game didn't care got in the car and it was just always supportive great job where do you want to go eat my dad I would describe as just um kind of just like brutally honest but not again not in any pushy way like if I played bad he'd get in the car and be like "Man, eh, you weren't your best today I'm like okay if I played well he'd be like oh you're really good today and that actually is true to this day that's how he he kind of you know, communicates with me, even it could be a WNBA final game. And he'd be like, oh, you were amazing today. i be like, oh, you know what? You weren't <laughs> so great. Wow. Um, so I, I actually had like a really good combo of like support no matter what. And then like just brutal honesty, like no smoke being blown up my butt, if you will. Yes.
0: So was it about sports for them? I mean, were they into sports or was it like, "Hey, Susan should in the, playing the violin? I mean, could it oh, have yeah. been anything?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it, it wasn't just sports. Sports just came so naturally to me. It was always what I was interested in. And I think that's why. I don't remember there being talk about having or wanting me to get a scholarship it wasn't like that at all in fact my dad um both my dad and my sister went to brown and i only bring that up to say you know ivy league doesn't have scholarships right and so when i was being recruited it was always academics in my house and when i was being recruited by all the different schools you know at first it was like well, what about these you know brown you'd be legacy what about that and i was like oh i don't know if that's really the level that i'm looking for (laughs) So they moved quickly, but it wasn't about the scholarship, I guess what I'm saying, and I'm, I'm lucky that I can sit here and say that. But even when it came down to my, my final couple schools, which obviously UConn, because I ended up going there, oh. Stanford, Vanderbilt, Duke, Notre Dame, those were kind of the finals. Stanford and Vanderbilt being like the top three. My parents very much wanted me to go to the academic school. They really didn't. It wasn't about the basketball experience number one.
0: So were, were your parents about achievement then? I mean, was there a level of expectation in your house that you guys were gonna do well? i mean, I say you guys, I know you have a sister, but.
1: Yes and no, I think my sister, speaking of, um, Jen kind of set the bar. She was incredibly successful academically from like day one. She just was like always in the, you know, honors classes, AP classes, always killing it. So I had, and she did, she played sports as well. And I always had her to look to. Um, I think it was more trying to be like her than my parents ever putting pressure on us.
0: So on the competitive part of it, I mean, at a certain point, you obviously developed into a very competitive person. Was that, is that again, a nurture versus nature thing? Or is that just in your DNA? I mean, were you always like that crazy competitive person?
1: Yeah, that's, I think that's like day one. Um, You know how it is when you're little, how it first showed itself for me was I was the sorest of sore losers. I mean, I could not handle losing. It, it was like tears, or I would try to just cheat until <laughs> you know I achieved victory. There's a, there's like a you know family story where it's actually my sister would uh, mark the cards in Candyland. I forget what it was the last one maybe like the lollipop or something and she would like mark it so she knew where it was That is
0: some sophisticated so she, little kid uh, competitive. Yeah. i never thought about cheating you, in Candyland
1: <laughs> I told you right from the jump. She was a, she was a smarty pants um, So yeah, I followed in her footsteps in that too I would do whatever it took to not lose because I was like the sorest loser the sorest and eventually you get older you start to understand you can't be that way, and how to use it instead, Um, but the competitiveness was was always there.
0: So sports, when you were young, was it that 365 day a year thing like it kinda is now for young people, like you were playing basketball all the time, or, or were you just kinda rolling with whatever the season was? Because I think about, as you know, to get to a place where you're being recruited by the absolute best schools in the country, I mean, maybe that's the way it goes now, but all these kids become specialists very early on and very focused in a 365 way. Was that you?
1: No. Not at all. When I think back on my childhood and my relationship to sports, it was very playful. I mean, I was not the kid that went home and like worked on her game. That just wasn't me. I mean, much to all of my coaches dismay. I I was just not that kid, but what I would do is like, you know, when Roger down the street would knock on my door to go ride bikes, I was like, yeah, let's go. You know, like that was my childhood. Just very, all of it was play.
0: You know, it's interesting. You mentioned playfulness. I was, Looking at all these clips of you on YouTube and stuff and all these highlights. And I swear to God, you're, you look like you're smiling and almost like laughing part of the time when you're out there playing. It's like a serious game you're playing and like the, the ball gets swung over to you and, you and you smile and then you shoot it. I'm like, have you ever, has anyone ever said that? Or are you aware of that, that you appear to have a real joy when you're playing?
1: I try to. You know what they say, ignorance is bliss. I think as I got older in my professional career there was probably less smiling just because i knew i was like so aware of all the bad that could happen <laughs> you know what i mean? <laughs> but yeah i tried to have fun with it because that's where the good stuff is that's where you know you can get into a really good mindset you can start to play a little bit freer when you're actually enjoying and and there're definitely times when i've gotten older like i said where i've lost that a little bit you know temporarily and the minute you you find it again, that's when you can you can play at a higher level. It's really I think connected. So was it eye
0: opening for you or an awakening in some way to go to college where all of a sudden it's serious business? It's just not. Hey, let's go ride bikes and shoot baskets or do whatever. <laughs> I mean, you're you're playing for Gino Ariyama, who I don't know the guy except to see him on TV. He seems pretty serious mm-hmm. about what he's doing there. Was that a I guess a real change for you?
1: Yes and no. Um, the stage was a change, but. The high school I went to, it's called Christ the King. It's like a national, perennial national powerhouse. You know, players like Shamiko Holskoa went there, Tina Charles went there. Um, these are like New York greats. On the men's side, it's like Lamar Odom went to Christ the King. I mean, some, some like great, great players. And that was like a little bit of a taste of an intense atmosphere. So when I got to college, I was, I was lucky that I had had that little taste, but no, nothing prepares you for that stage because that it's just huge. It's just bigger. So yeah. it just means more. There's more pressure. There's more expectation. But I, what I will say about coach Ariama is for as serious, as you might see him or even in the moments when he looks like super pissed off and he's yelling and screaming. Yeah. He looks he intense. A, <laughs> yeah. He's intense. He can be for sure. He has a, an incredible balance though. He's, he's incredibly funny. He knows when to bring like that levity to a moment or maybe to a practice, even to a huddle in a game. Like there's the, I could tell you stories of huddles, where he has sat down in a timeout and absolutely screamed at us about whatever happened on the court and then there's times where he sat down and he's like made a joke and we kind of all like loosened up so he had that about him and i think that helped all of us we understood what the stakes were but we also knew we had to have fun while doing it
0: so what did that teach you about leadership because i mean two things are going on right i mean you're kind of thrust in this position where you're a leader because you're the best player on the team and you know whether you want to be or not, you have to take this on in sports, but you also have played for these different coaches and you've seen the impact of what leadership can bring to a team. Can you talk a little bit about leadership in in your experience?
1: I think I first started to develop what would eventually be like my leadership style in college um, in large part because of Coach Ariama. He um, at one point asked me to go in his office, sat me down and he was basically like, Trying to teach me that everything that happened on the court was my fault. Everything that happened on the court was my responsibility. So even if, you know, Jane over there threw the ball out of bounds, that, that's my fault. And I think what he was just trying to tap into was he could see how my personality was, right? He knew that I had relationships with everyone on the team. Sometimes clicks form on teams or three people are closer than the next three and whatever. But I was kind of, I was friends with everybody and he kind of saw that. And for me to be able to use that to my advantage would be to really kind of like invest in those friendships, invest in those relationships. And then from there, I could be the leader that I am, which is someone who the way I like to frame it is you kind of build this relationship equity and you're just basically putting deposits in that bank every day, right? Every day you're putting a deposit in each individual, like each and each teammates bank and also like the team as a collective. And then from there, when you need to cash out, if you will, which to me is you have to say something hard. You've already built that relationship where you can say the hard things. People know you're coming from a good place. Later in my career, it really became almost like a mentor type of a vibe because I was so much older than my teammates. So yeah, you have to like get to know them. And I joke, I had to like you know, learn some TikTok dances here and there to make sure I could like speak the language. But really all that was, was in the heat of the moment, we're in a game and I had to go up to, you know, Brianna Stewart or Jewel Lloyd and be like, yo, like, you need to make that pass next time. They go, okay, cool. They don't think it's not like, oh God, Sue's so annoying. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. they know I'm coming from a good place.
0: What is playing professionally and all the claim that's gone with that, what has that taught you about other parts of your life? Oh,
1: I mean, which direction am I going here? Um, <laughs> I think it's given me elements of discipline in other parts of my life. I have a hundred percent, all the things I'm talking about with like leadership and, you know, investing in relationships. I see that come out in my friendships with people, you know, understanding how to show up for people, right? I always kind of say like, the one thing that I love about sports is you have this group of people from all different backgrounds, you know, name it just all the differences, right? And they're put together and it's like, all right, we got to make this work for this like greater goal. So everybody puts their individual stuff to the side and shows up every day for the betterment of the team. And that to me is, you know, what we're missing in our country a lot of, a lot of times, <laughs> like that attitude. Yes, It's like, you don't want to be selfish in the world of sports. In fact, you're looked at poorly if you're selfish. And I feel like that has 100% kind of trickled into my regular life and kind of taught me a lot about how I want to show up in the world. Well,
0: it's interesting you say that because we have a leadership meeting coming up tomorrow and the big theme about it is kind of how we work together. And to your point about a bunch of different people come from different places and here they are at Nordstrom, we're trying to sell shoes and clothes to people. And you know, how do you create a sense of purpose and alignment that's really about the spirit of intent more than it is mm-hmm. about the practices or the tactics? Mm-hmm. And I mean, everyone kind of knows that stuff intuitively, but it's not easy to do. And, you know, it's one of the things about what I do here at work that has so many parallels to sports. I, I mean, again, I grew up playing sports and playing basketball and that stuff has a direct application to the workplace, too. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, you know, that next whatever the next chapter is for you, how you're going to carry over all these lessons from sports and and how wow. it becomes kind of a natural Compliment to whatever is you're doing next.
1: Yeah, it's, it's already starting. I mean one thing that I learned from sports in general Also for I played 10 years overseas in Europe it's kind of this idea where You have to come from a place of respect versus coming from a place of conflict. I guess Let me put it this way when I walk in the locker room and you know, if we have Three players from Europe, you know five black players two white players and fill in the blank the rest I'm not walking in there going like, "Oh, I don't see color and I don't see different religion." No, I do see it. Yeah. Of course we see it. We all see it. Right. It's that you walk in understanding that we're different and you come from a place of respect in that. And that's really what playing overseas taught me the most. Cuz yeah, I could go, I played in Russia for 10 years. I could land in Moscow and every 5 seconds be like, "Oh my god, that's different." And, "Oh my god, this is different." And, "Oh my god, this tastes different." And, "Oh my god, they do that different." You could do that left and right. Or you could just be like, okay, they do it different. And like, let me kind of like see what that's about and live in this culture in, in their ways versus like fighting it. So was it
0: harder to get a sense of team and purpose when you're doing it in a foreign country with people you don't speak the same language? Or did, <laughs> were you able to find common ground where you could come together in the same way?
1: No, you find common ground. Yeah. Sometimes, listen, the language language barriers are tough regardless. If you're at a restaurant trying to order food, they can be tough. I remember a couple of us went to a, a cafe in Italy, once, and one of my teammates who spoke Spanish was like, I kind of think I got this. Like, I think I kind of know enough where I can do this. 10 minutes later, we all have, you know, <laughs> piping hot cups of milk. Yes. We were like, Where's the coffee? <laughs> she ordered, she thought she was ordering lattes and ended up like just being milk. So these things happen. Um, and again, that's like a good example. You can either be mad you don't have the coffee or you can kind of like be like, All right, this was a cultural difference. Let me go figure this out.
0: Yeah. So you, you bring up the Russia deal and playing overseas. And this is a whole topic, obviously, for women's sports, but I'm just curious about your take on the pay issues. You know, there's been all that publicity around women players get less pay and all this and so much less so, particularly with the NBA. But as you well know, the economics are also completely different in those Mm -hmm. deals, too. So how do you think about that in terms of what seems to be equitable and fair and pay In pro sports for women
1: yeah i think a lot of people um misunderstand some of the fight that we're fighting in terms of pay equity Um, i think people it's very easy for people especially nowadays because they get on twitter and they like to you know talk their talk on there they think that you know i'm showing up being like LeBron, I should be getting the same money as LeBron pay equity. And like, that's yes. not what we're saying. That's not what we're saying at all. I mean, that'd be well, nice, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite by the way is like, people will like to compare us to a LeBron type salary Yeah. as if like, if you're not making LeBron money, you're a total, <laughs> you failed in life. <laughs> yes. I'm like, there's like two people making LeBron money. What do you mean? Like just because yeah. we're not making a trillion dollars doesn't mean we failed at life, but I digress. No, what we're saying is the way men's sports, from the jump, like if the, it will use the NBA, if the NBA started in I don't even know the year, let's call it the 50s or something like that, if that's when the NBA started, they got invested in, they got looked at as an investment, they got TV time, they got TV deals, right? And it all through the course of time, all that investment, the corporate sponsorships, all of those things allowed for the NBA to be where they are now. And from a woman's basketball standpoint, currently, we just want our fair chance to build a business. Because a lot of times we get judged on the bottom line now. But the reality is if the NBA were judged on their bottom line back when it started, they would have folded. It's not like they were a crazy success at the start either. And anyone who's in business knows. It's like when you invest, it's like you have to build. I kind of joke that at times we've just been, um, there's been times where money has been given to us. I kind of make this really bizarro analogy, so work with me here it's almost like we've been getting child support, right? <laughs> like from the MBA at times we've been getting, yeah. you know, cause the MBA oh. does give us money, they do. So if we were babies, we've been given the money to live, but nobody was teaching us how to walk, how to talk or how to eat with a fork, right? Cause in business you have to not just invest, you have to then help grow the business. So for us, we just want our fair chance at growing a business. And that's where like, to me, where the equity really lives, right? Like. Being at, why is there only 4% of media coverage, sports media coverage spent on women? 4%. 4%. People are interested. We know that now. The WNBA is starting to prove that. Women's soccer has proven that. Right. And their story is actually the best one to talk about because they, they, they win, they do get the crowds, they do make the money, they do have the revenue, and they still couldn't get an equitable deal with U.S. soccer. So it's just that's what we're talking about.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. There's a chicken and the egg thing about growing that sport and growing the economics of it. It was going to be my next question is, and I guess you you said investment. I'm I'm wondering if other things about what could be done to improve the economics of women's pro basketball so that you guys can make more money. Because you're absolutely right. I mean, the pie is only as big as the pie is. And mm-hmm. so that's why you can't make LeBron James money because the pie's not that big, but so how do you grow the pie? I guess is what I'm asking.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's where we need to have people look at us like an investment and not like a charity. And, and by the way, I totally understand. Sponsorship comes and goes one year. It's going to be company X. The next year it's company Y. That's like, I get that's part of it, but we have so much change over. It's like, all right, who's actually going to be the one that invests in us and, and wants us to grow and wants to watch us grow and wants to help us grow. We just the WNBA is an interesting spot because for a really long time, I felt we were lacking in this like cool factor for a really long time early in our league's existence. We were always the butt of the joke. We were on the SNL skit, you know, getting made fun of or, you know, you might have like a, a talk show, a radio person, like a sports talk show person, like, you know, just basically crapping on us. And I've always said it's like, I don't know hockey that well. I didn't grow up with it. Um, go crack I'm a big fan <laughs> now of them, but I don't feel the need to talk badly about it. When it comes up, I'm not like, oh, hockey, who the hell? Why would you watch? Th-? I don't do that, but there's something about women's basketball that really pulls that out of people. Really? You and think so, so? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's not enough to not watch it. They have to really tear it down. And I think for a long time that like seeped into a lot of people's psyches and we became just the butt of a joke. We became not cool. And that, I think, influenced a lot of people's decision-making around us, right? Because as we all know, these rooms exist where there's not that many people in the room and they're making big decisions. And we were not getting the benefit of the doubt in those rooms. Now we're starting to, and you're starting to see the difference. Like even the fact that people would go around saying, oh, who watches the WNBA? Nobody goes to these games. And then I pull up to Climate Page and I'm like, wow, there's 19,000 people here. Like who's saying that nobody watches this? That right there has been a big, big, big hurdle for us that we're finally getting over.
0: Yeah. You know what? You talk about the cool factor. It was one thing I wanted to ask you about that's changed just generally in sports and kind of culturally is the degree to which basketball players or athletes have become like Cultural icons, I mean, way more than whatever the sport is. And it's all Mm -hmm. kind of about that influencer and that cool thing, the cultural stuff. And, you know, one of the ways I think about it, and it's because of what I do for a living, but the whole fashion part of it. Like, you know, I, I go to fashion shows and stuff in Paris, and they're like, who are all these. 19-year-old guys are like 6'10", sitting in the front row, like at a Givenchy fashion show or something. I mean, you know, it's just I'm curious from your point of view, as you've seen the cultural significance of pro athletes and and how you've been able to tap in it. Because, you know, all that stuff happens really organically. You talk about people anointing people in rooms, but it's also true that all the stuff about what shows up on social media around fashion and how people present themselves and kind of that cool factor is its own thing
1: absolutely absolutely I mean it's crazy I've I've heard that like if LeBron wears you know hat X in like a press conference and and it's on TV that hat is sold out like two days later like that's how influential someone like LeBron is I think where the WNBA falls in that is we are very diverse and we actually represent I think our country and the, the diversity that exists in our country probably more so than any other league like we've got something for everyone right there's someone in our league that everybody in this country can can identify with can relate to which then makes them a fan of i know i've had people who've come up to me you know because the tunnel fit has become obviously a big thing right. you gotta come correct every game um they're taking your picture you gotta be ready and there's people that come up to me like oh my god like because you wore x y and z like i felt the confidence to do that and now i'm able to learn about myself, find, thing, find things out about myself, like really deep dive into who I am. And that's how I view clothes. Like clothing to me is just another way to kind of showcase who you are, different sides of your personality. There are times when you just wanna be comfortable, right? And then there are times where you wanna like push the envelope a little bit and try something new. And that can be scary, but there's that's that's how you find out. Think about life. Like if you don't get out of your comfort zone and go try something new you're never going to really learn about yourself and clothing is is the same way so when i wear something like totally different from what i've ever worn and i rock it in a tunnel pick you get you gain a little bit more confidence that yeah. day and people are learning from that and they're seeing that in you and it, you can really showcase your, your personality and that's what i love about it
0: that's great yeah i mean we get a lot of pro-athlete stuff going on in our stores the other thing that happens like oh, in, sure. you think like in baseball when they go to a town they're there for three days and they yeah, got nothing to do shopping. they're like walk around they're shopping and like
1: so oh, we know where all the nordstroms are on the road yeah no it's i'm not even just saying that because we're on this this pod like we all know where all the nordstroms are
0: and like one of the things i noticed here was like our men's shoe department sold crazy amounts of shoes to women because their feet were too big in the women's shoe department so um. like all these louboutin you know like the sneakers mm-hmm. that are super bedazzled spiky. and whatever spiky yeah. and i'm like man who's buying all these things we're selling to a ton of WNBA players I'm like oh yeah no they,
1: the wmba players with big feet for a while were obsessed with nordstrom rack yes because that's where they would get the big sizes all right yeah, we like, got we're so I in like heels and things like that
0: you can help me we can work this angle up um, okay. <laughs> later this is this is a good opportunity for us okay so you know given your place in society and the authority and credibility you bring to stuff it gives you latitude to comment on all kinds of things and you know, there's stuff going on in your sport. You, you talked about the pay equity thing. and you I mean, you think about, like, the Brittany Griner situation. I know you played in Russia. I mean, do you get asked to comment on this stuff? I mean, do you feel a, a responsibility to opine on it?
1: Um, yeah, it's not so much responsibility. It's, it's almost like our pleasure. And I think where that comes from is as WNBA players, um, as women in this world – I think specifically female athletes in this world, um, again, such a diverse group where I think it's like 75, 80% people of color in our league. And then it's like, I'm throwing this out there, like 60, 70%, maybe, you know, LGBTQ members. So it's just, we have this melting pot. So we, we are actively understanding of all of these issues because they directly impact us. And as athletes, what's unique about us, is we have microphones in front of our face. We're asked to do podcasts, we're asked to go on CNN, we're after games, we have press conferences all the time. So we're in a unique position to speak on these types of of issues, but we're also speaking on them from actual experience, like personal, personal experience. And so in some ways, I think all of us in the WNBA, we, we, we started to figure out in the last couple of years, like, well, if we're not gonna speak on these things, who is? So we have to take these opportunities. We have to use these moments. We have to use our platform. And that's kind of where I think a lot of the off the court stances have come from. Um, You know, you bring up BG and it's like, if we're not going to be the ones advocating for her, who's going to do it? Right. You know, And, and, and of course, you add on the fact that she's literally one of us. Right. It's like literally our sister, our friend, all of it yeah you know, and, and, I mean, and literally a potentially
0: shared experience because so many of you played overseas and, and all oh, yeah. this comes with that all this risk all this stuff i um, mean you know mm-hmm. it happened to her but it,
1: oh yeah it could have happened to any of us yeah. any of us yeah i was over there i remember when the crimea stuff first happened in 2000 maybe like 13 14. i was in russia when all that happened like there was talks like should we be should we stay what's going on you know and and that's like a real a real thing there's there's been WNBA players who we're playing in Turkey when you know a nightclub got shot up. Yeah. And some of them were there. Some of them were at that nightclub when it happened. Like these are all real things. Um, so again, I, I think it just comes down to really starting to understand like who we are in, in, in this world and, and how our voices can be used, and just not missing those opportunities. Right.
0: Look, you've been super great. You've answered all the questions. I've got just you know, <laughs> one last question for you. So you've had this amazing career and everything. It's weird to talk about retirement because you're a young person. So mm-hmm. while you retired for basketball, you're obviously not retired from life. So, right. I mean, I'm sure you've been asked this a zillion times, but I'm just kind of curious about what's next. Because I was reading about you and watching some stuff. One of the things was said, it was Sue Bird, entrepreneur and, you know, basketball <laughs> analyst on TV. So are you an entrepreneur? Like, What business do you have going on? I want to know about this. You want
1: to know about it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, <clears throat> so there's things like um, I'm an investor in a bunch of different. Things, um, Some restaurants in Boston that was less about like wanting to be in the restaurant business and more about a friend wanting to open restaurants and believing in him. But I've, I've been an investor in those restaurants for like 10 years now. Um, some of the companies that I have relationships with like Tonals, is a good example. I'm also, oh, yeah. I endorse that product, but I also invest in that myself, Alex Morgan, Chloe Kim, Simone Manuel, four female athletes. We started a production company called Together. It was kind of with this idea of, you know, I'm sure you've heard of Players' Tribune and Uninterrupted and and, and things like that, which are, you know, highlighting sports. But even in in that world, women don't get the the same amount of coverage. So it's kind of our version of putting our money where our mouth is and just really wanting to be able to highlight women, women in sport, and use this company to to be that platform. Um, So that's happening. I have done some analyst work. I'm trying to figure out what I want to do in that in the future. Do I want to be like a proper game analyst or do I want to have more fun with it and and do something like a Manning cast, you know, like, so just those are to pretty good. Out. By
0: the way, I watched my first yeah, Manning really cast on a Monday night football game. I was highly entertained. I thought it was yeah, great. Good.
1: And, and speaking of the Mannings, you know, Peyton has his show called Peyton's Places and he he obviously lives in the football world where they kind of bop around at different football places. Um, I'm gonna be doing the one for college basketball. So I kind of have that on the horizon, be filming those. And yeah, the beauty of it is, like you said, like I just turned 42, and even though I was becoming ancient in basketball terms, I'm still pretty young. So I wanna kind of take the next year to really try things out, see what I like, see what I don't like, and go from there.
0: You know, it's amazing you talk about being 42 and playing basketball. Not easy to do. And I got, you play at a super high level, even at the very end. I mean, you must have done an amazing job taking care of yourself. I'm just curious how you were able to play at such a high level for so long.
1: Yeah. um, Yeah. I joke. Like sometimes I'm like, I think some of it is like genetic. I just got really lucky that I was able to kind of stay healthy. I mean, I had my fair share of injuries, but stay pretty healthy. And then I, I mean, it's, it's all the other people that I work with. I was able to, in the last like six, seven years of my career, hire the right people, surround myself with yeah. the right people, whether it's a sports performance coach, a nutritionist, you know, you find your acupuncturist, you find your chiropractor, you get the team around you that's gonna allow you to do this. Cause as you get older, it's not that you, you know, when you see an aging athlete out there, they didn't like forget how to shoot and they didn't forget how to pass. They didn't get bad. They didn't get worse in their ball handling. You know what I mean? It's just your body, it doesn't allow you to do the things you want. You can't get to the spot to get the shot off. You can't create the space to do the thing. So if you can keep your body going at a certain level, your experience and your skill set, that's what allows it to shine or to continue to shine. And that's kind of, that was my mindset in the last couple of years.
0: Yeah. It's funny. You talk about Aging and basketball and stuff. So I'm tall. I'm literally. I get asked if I play basketball all the time. I'm 60. I no. I mean, I wish I could. No. And in my mind, I can. But to your point, I can't. It's it's you know you can't move laterally and do all that stuff. And particularly right. if you're not playing all the time either, you're gonna get hurt. But it's it's funny. Like I literally got on a plane yesterday, and someone goes, "Oh, I like basketball player?" Like, yeah. I mean, I'm flattered, I guess, in some way, but I'm really yeah I'm not. All right. Well, look, it's been a real pleasure for me to talk to you, Sue. It's, it's, it's a big deal for me. I'm, I'm a fan. And um, it's just been great to, to learn about your journey. And you made it easy on me, too. So thank you for being nice to me here.
1: <laughs> anytime. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Yeah.
0: So, I, you know, are you living in Seattle? Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to meet you sometime. I don't know if you're ever around, but we're down here all okay. the time. And if there's ever, ever anything you think Nordstrom could do in partnership with any of this stuff you're working on, let me know. Okay. I mean, yeah, we, we'd be interested in that. Yeah, That'd be great. I
1: actually have an idea already, so that'd be
0: great. All right. Well, you know, you know how to find <laughs> me. And uh, okay. again, I'd love to meet you in person. Again, congratulations on all your success, and thanks so much.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye, Sue. Thanks thank you, you. Yeah, see you later.
0: Alright, so you've already heard my spiel at the end of each episode encouraging all of you listeners to call in or email me with your Nordstrom stories, and you haven't actually heard many of them because honestly, we didn't receive that many at the beginning, but more have been coming in lately and a few have really stood out, so we're actually going to do an entire episode with these stories, but I'd like to share one story with you now to give you a little taste of what you're in for. So one of the interesting things that came up in the Nordstrom mailbag is there was actually multiple customers that commented about a Nordstrom scent. And I got to admit, it's a little bit of a mystery that we want to unravel here on the show. So you're going to hear about the Nordstrom scent and if in fact it is something that we have here. Hello. Hi, is this Joan?
2: Yes, it
0: is. Hi, it's Pete Nordstrom calling.
2: Hi. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. You're really nice to agree to be on the Nordy pod. This is great. So we we've, we've got our our little system set up here recording you and everything. Um but yeah, I I just I want to follow up on that note that you'd sent us about the specific scent in our stores. And I I guess I'm curious to start like is it a specific scent like you've smelled someplace else or you've only noticed it in Nordstrom or like tell me about how it came to be that you've noticed that there's a specific scent
2: okay well I guess I've been shopping at Nordstrom like my entire life and I just noticed that when I would go into a Nordstrom generally like very pleasant smell well that's good you know obviously (laughs) visually you know beautiful and everything but you know, I'd take my package home and I would take everything out. And for a little while until, like, I did my laundry, I would have that scent in my closet. And I really liked it. And it reminded me of being in the store. And I thought, huh. And then, you know, I realized, like, I've shopped at a lot of your stores all over the country. And it's always the same. It's very unique and Something that I couldn't find anywhere else. And so I thought, that must be what the store smells like.
0: That was um, going to be my question is, like, <laughs> did you notice this same scent at all the Nordstrom stores? Sounds like you shopped at a few of them.
2: Yeah, know. I noticed they were the same. And, you know, in the moment when you're shopping, it's sort of a subliminal thing. So it wasn't like walking by some of those stores where the scents are, like, wafting out into the sidewalk. And it's kind of overwhelming. It's really nice and pleasant and sort of in the background. And that's what I liked about it. But, you know, the other funny thing is I don't smell it at the rack.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. I got to admit, when I got this note, I huh I'm not sure. And then actually I got another call from a customer saying a version of the same thing. Like, you guys have some kind of scent. And I go, oh, I got to figure this out. So when I asked one person on our team, they said, well, we did years ago. So I'm actually trying to dig in to see if there's a little bit of history about this, because now I'm pretty interested. I mean, it's like, well, look, either we do or we don't, and we did or we didn't. I'm not sure. So I will tell you, and this is probably not going to be satisfying to you, but there's still a little bit of mystery about exactly what the deal is with a cent or not a cent.
2: Well, you know, if you don't have one, you might want to make one. Yeah, I I thought about that, too. I think a lot of people would like it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Okay, so if we, in fact, had a fragrance that we could bottle and sell, how would you use it? Where would you use it?
2: You know, first I was thinking I would want it like as sort of sachet in my closet, like hanging it in my closet, or like some kind of diffuser, and I was also thinking I would put it in like my bedroom bathroom, just because to me it's very pleasant, and very calming to me that smell I don't know I mean maybe there isn't a smell but somehow it's the way the store is set up you know it's kind of like new car smell
0: right yeah you know it's funny when when I read this and I thought about it to in my memory I have such a distinct memory of the smell of the downtown Seattle store when I was really young like a teenager coming into work during the summers and and what that store smelled like and it'd be hard for me to describe but it evokes an immediate kind of memory for me just talking about that and And I don't know that I've noticed that specifically since that time. I mean we have so many stores they're all they all have their own individual thing going on, but it did make me think when I read this like, I don't know, maybe they just did this and didn't tell me. I don't know
2: well, it does definitely remind me of the Nordstrom brand, like as soon as I smell that smell, I, I don't even if I was blindfolded, I would know I'm in a Nordstrom store, oh, that's good, so. I mean, the good news is your stores smell nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: I guess it could be a lot worse. Yes, that is true. And I I will follow up on that idea, but I just want to let you know that you have my attention. I was like, you know, I I get a lot of feedback from a lot of people, and this was kind of a unique one. And then when I got another one about the same subject, I said, okay, I got to chase this down. So,
2: I appreciate that. And I appreciate that you, uh, follow up on these questions and inquiries as trivial as it may seem i i think that's really cool and it does represent the brand really well i mean it's one of the reasons that i've been shopping with you for so long and i know a lot of people that are big fans of nordstrom and it's because of the way you guys treat your customers and i just really appreciate that you guys have uh, the mission and the vision
0: that you do well you're nice to say that i mean this is kind of the, the fun part of my job in a lot of ways being able to hear back from customers and and i think and to your point it could actually represent an opportunity for us so I, i'm compelled by that too John, thanks again so much it was great talking to you and thanks for being our customer
2: thank you
0: bye-bye bye Well, folks, clearly I got to get to the bottom of this and I'm kind of interested personally. So next episode, stay tuned for that. We will actually have an answer to this question. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share and a review so other people can find this thing, too. For more information about the show, head to Nordstrom.com slash Nordy Podcast, where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. And remember, we really want to share your experience with Nordstrom here on the Nordy Pod too. So drop your story in the mailbag. Good or bad, we want to hear it. Send us an email to Nordipodcast at Nordstrom.com or give us a call and leave a voicemail at 206 594 0526 and you might just hear your voice on a future episode of the Nordy Pod. And make sure to tune in next time as we open wide the Nordstrom Mailbag to share more interesting stories from employees and customers alike. I remember one time we went to watch the Mariners playoff game at a bar in downtown Seattle and just stayed there for the entire game and came back and our manager was upset with us because we were gone for three hours. <laughs> the three-hour lunch break didn't go over well? Yeah, the three-hour lunch break did not go over well, but what the
2: heck? My husband was having a good time at the wedding. He had had a few drinks. And he happened to take a little tumble down some stone steps outside. I, up- I
0: don't mean to chuckle, but the story's getting better already. Like, okay, keep going. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so this other associate walks up and she says, can I help your husband? And I said, absolutely, go and do it. And he looked at me like he was heading into some kind of a black vortex. My husband goes, this isn't going to work. I said,
0: da-da-da-da-da, I got this. Fielding customer calls and hearing outstanding employees' stories is a large part of what I do in my day-to-day. And it's really a lot of fun for me. But until now, this stuff has never actually been broadcast on any kind of public forum. And we've got some pretty remarkable stories to share. So join us next time on The Nordy Pod.